0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Quick note before we start, my two-player game of Forbidden Love, Starcrossed, has gone out to Kickstarter backers, and that means it's now available to you. Ask your friendly local game store, or go to bullypulpitgames.com to get your physical or digital copy today. My guest today is Lauren McManamon, a wonderful designer whose games are centered on consent, agency, and the discourses we hold around those concepts but they're actually also super fun. I was intrigued by her romantic hacks of existing games, and reminded to have her on the show by her current Kickstarter for Girl Underground, and then totally won over by her academic work. Her master's thesis is about the experiences of complainants of sexual assault in the New Zealand criminal justice system, how they are both delegitimized and re-traumatized by the process of giving testimony. Please consider that a content warning for those who may be triggered by the subject and a call to listen for anyone else. Let's jump right in. Yeah, okay, so the New Zealand thing, you are not currently in New Zealand. You are like on a dream pursual thing here in. You're in Calgary? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I. Oh, gosh. And it's a very good way of putting
1: it. <laughs> because uh, I I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I'm from Wellington originally. And went to school there, had my first job there. And then it hit a point where I was like, oh, I kind of just needed to get out. And like, live somewhere else for a bit and have since then lived around like uh did a year in the states so then like a year and a half in australia and now i'm here in in canada so i haven't really been staying put for very very long but yeah i think they're pursuing (laughs) this sort of weird
0: weird dreamy lifestyle of living all over the places yeah the best way i put it somewhere right (laughs) but that's I don't know. That's obviously like something that you feel called to right now. I'm, I'm very interested in the fact that you chose Calgary, actually. I'm, I'm really like, I've, I've moved around a bit and very recently moved and Calgary was not a place that I would have been like, ah, yes, the sights, the sounds, the amazing, (laughs) uh, luxurious tropical lifestyle of Calgary. What, what was exciting to you about that place?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I get that a lot when I'm like, "Oh, I moved to Calgary." People are like, "What?" <laughs> it's it's not like where your mind goes to first at all. But uh, I get, oh gosh, it's it's funny when I think about like having to explain where I'm at today because a lot of it involves sort of oh, so I have to roll back. So actually, that was informed by this previous decision, like that one. Oh, I keep going back. But um, I think the short of it is like um, I ended up. When I did my year in the States, I was on one of their like uh, year-long work visas, and then um, was like really keen to like hang around in North America because uh, I had a lot of really neat friends here and had my first taste of like gaming cons and that kind of thing. I was just starting to dip my toes into like the gaming community here and was really starting to love it. And then um, just as I was getting going, that was for my visa ran out, and I was like, oh shoot. So the company I was with kind of more or less like said, Oh, there's jobs available in like Sydney if you want to um hang around with us. And I was like, Oh well, I can't stay here. Sydney sounds fun. <laughs> and then um did a bit in Sydney and I, again I had a lot of really good friends there, but like I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> there was um oh gosh. Yeah, it was, it was not for me, like the city, this big city, um all the stress, like high intensity, like, uh, like very um, hectic work life balance there. And so when I sort of was realised that I couldn't do it anymore in, in Sydney, I was like, oh shoot, where do I go? Because I won't have a job. <laughs> I won't really know anyone. And I um, had been in touch with Fraser Simons, who lives in Calgary here. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, Calgary is really livable compared to like other places in, in Canada. I got some friends there. And I'll, you know I'll touch down there, see how it goes. And I was a bit hesitant at first because it's like I'd just been living in Sydney for a long time and I was like, oh, what is Lauren gonna look like in a more quieter, like slower pace of life? And honestly, I'm, I'm actually really loving it. <laughs> it's, it's been a nice chance to sort of like focus on myself, have, be able to live and work without working all the time just to survive, which is what I was like doing in Sydney. And yeah, I, I've had a really good opportunity to really nurture and develop uh, like my own game designs, and work on sort of doing more editing for um, other designers and that kind of thing, without having to worry about like finances and that kind of thing. So that's so it's a really long rambly way <laughs>
0: <laughs> answering what was quite a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> Calgary, that, that easy Calgary live in. I, I had never really thought about that, like yeah, I guess compared to like a big metropolitan city, like it's pretty simple there and like not too Yeah, Calgary doesn't make a lot of demands on you, I guess.
1: Yeah, it it uh it really doesn't. Yeah, it's um and I maybe I've been quite fortunate enough too to be able to do a lot of like sort of working from home um freelancing stuff. So it's been really great for, um, also traveling a fair bit and, um, going to convention spaces and meeting people without having to worry about, um, vacation time or time off.
0: I think so. Yeah. (laughs) I feel quite privileged there. That has been pretty lovely for me as well. Just the, like, it's not that I won't, you know, pay a price for doing this, but don't have to like choose the, th- the two places I can go this year, you know, getting the time off work. Oh, totally. It's nice to not have that hurdle, even if it means you work till 11 p.m. occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is the sacrifices you make for having that flexibility, I suppose. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Um, I'm curious about, well, I mean, I know a few things that you've been working on lately. Uh, Girl Underground is doing obscenely well. Um, But what else has been occupying your time?
1: Oh, so many things. I have a really lovely co-designer who I'm working on a couple of bits with um, Kyle Thompson. I think he's um, underscore underscore YGraph on Twitter. And he and I have been working on a lot of kind of random bits and pieces. We um, have a beta out of Strange Bards, which was my very self-indulgent duet game about creating really dorky eccentric strange birds and playing out their life over the through the narrative beats like a documentary cuz that comes from like i guess my my roots home in New Zealand while i'm not there like our our uh, country just has so many weird dorks like who, yeah we weird dorky birds
0: i love can can we t- can we just talk about weird dorky New Zealand birds briefly like kiwis get all the love because of, of how cute and 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 ill-equipped they are but like there I was I can't remember if it was you or Catherine Himes who's telling me about this bird that like it all like it doesn't fly but all of its food is up in trees so it has to like climb but it uses its beak and so it's just like smashing its face into like (laughs) into the trunks of trees all the time that must have been someone else I guess it wasn't you
1: Oh no, yeah, I think that that may have been me. It's one of my favorites, uh, the kakapo. Yeah, exactly. Is New Zealand's flightless nocturnal parrot. Oh, no, it's the world's only flightless nocturnal parrot, which um, doesn't surprise me because that is such a strange combination of traits. And yeah, as you say, its its food lives up in trees, so it has to climb with its like claws and beak to like get up at berries and that kind of thing. And I think the, the kakaboi really was like the inspiration for that, that piece because it's so ridiculous but I have a weird pride for how like intrepid it is when it comes to living out its life. Um, and there are a bunch of other uh, just as ridiculous strange New Zealand birds. Um, like, oh I found out recently uh, we have the keriru, which is a wood pigeon. Um, and they are, I, I can't even begin to describe how like big and broad and like full chested they are. Um, and they're they're very um clumsy and spend their whole their days eating fermented berries and getting super drunk. And uh, <laughs> uh, so whenever you see that, like them uh, hanging around in trees and that kind of thing, they they look like very much like the drunken bird of our bird culture in new zealand they're quite they're quite delightful they're very silly
0: <laughs> yeah they are they they got those big like big pecks. i'm lo- i'm i'm looking yeah. now and yeah they're just like up there doing their thing career oh look at that little chick's really cute too
1: oh definitely
0: it's so funny they have so much dignity in illustrations but then yeah when you actually see them kind of doing their thing it's not so much
1: Oh yeah, like <laughs> you know when they're coming because like you hear them go like. Actually, they're quite silent when they fly. They're just like footer footer footer, But then they when they, <laughs> they land in trees, like they just take the whole tree down with them because like they have they have no <laughs> grace when it comes to landing, which I, <laughs> I feel like very like kindred to. <laughs> And actually that game has been quite nice too I got to learn a lot about some of the um extinct species of birds that were in New Zealand as well. Um, that were equally quite adorable. Like uh, well, the one that I really loved during playtesting was Feko, who was known as the Laughing Owl. Um, and Feco could fly, but preferred to run on foot. And so there are all of these drawings of <laughs> a uh, fecko like from people living there at the time that really like emphasized these long like long legs. It, it's the most bizarre proportions I've seen on a bird. And so they would like run around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't usually I usually Google during an interview. It's it's very unprofessional, but I really just have to check these birds out as you're as you're describing them. These they really have like legs like these things really got gams oh yeah they're working those Definitely. getaway sticks like just it's really weird to see such like stocky legs on a bird <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
1: i can totally imagine it too like that thing that's like gunning down um to, like catch like uh, rats and mice and like other things crawling around and um, And it had a love of the accordion, like uh, it was very social and curious. And um, settlers at that time would comment on how, like, it would pop up when they were um, playing music in the evening. And so it was a very like sweet, social but fierce runner predator kind of bird. And um, I only learned about it because I was writing strange birds, and I was like, oh, it felt like how a nice way to honor like this extinct species (laughs) from. my, my home country I guess was to like a role play as it which sounds quite weird when I say it out loud but it's, it's been a really nice way for me to get back to my roots while I've been traveling around I suppose
0: oh yeah you just maintain this connection to like some of your favorite parts of New Zealand I'm I'm very much in favor of role playing as animals like as non-humans in general I think whether you're being aliens or robots or just like the animals that exist on Earth, or rocks, or whatever. Like, it's just, there's such, it's such fertile ground.
1: Oh, definitely. In fact, a friend of mine ran, oh, what is it called? I think it's called The Woodlands. It's kind of like a a game where you each, like all the playbooks are based on, I think it's like the soldier and the scout and that kind of thing. And when I went to play it, I was like, I was like, I know it says here that you should be like a mouse or like a parrot or whatever. It was like, but can I please be a cockapoo? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and he was like, yeah, of course you can. So like, yeah, I, I was. Yeah, it's it's such a. It's I can't quite describe how neat it is getting to sit down for three hours and embody or personify this. Weird, flatless parrot, but it's probably some of the most best like role playing I've done in my life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the cuckoo. oh, hooray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> Huh. I'm. Do, do you get regular kind of play in your life? Like, do you do you get to game weekly, or do you have a regular group? Yeah, I did for the
1: longest time. I was playing something ridiculous, like a game a day through um the gauntlet RPG community, if you're familiar with them. Which has dropped back now that uh sort of game design and work has kind of taken over my life. But um yeah, I was playing a lot a lot of games um <laughs> up until I guess like the end of last year. Um and they're all like online, yeah, with the Gauntlet community there uh phew. There's nothing really consistent about the types of games that we play there either. Um, there's a lot of story games, they're like indie RPGs, um, a lot of Monster Hearts. Oh my gosh, they love their Monster Hearts. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you want to play some Monster Hearts with them, you can look them up sometime.
0: This this is this is crucial. Who do you like to play in Monster Hearts? What's your playbook?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, honestly, I think I, I've done a lot of thinking about this, and I'm probably um, a unicorn. Uh, and I say that being like bypan because like we, you know there's that whole like mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: that we oh, yeah.
1: don't exist. Um, but I think in general, like uh, I definitely have that side of me that is very um, like darker self self deprecating um, that comes out when I'm in a, a bad place. And then uh, I definitely employ the I believe in you move on a daily basis. Um, with my community spaces, so yeah, I think I think that's that's the one that probably embodies me. How about how about you? What is your Montezuma's playbook? Oh, I play the mortal. Ah, uh, nice.
0: Yeah, that's ba- That's just a cool like bad bad news fact about Alex Roberts.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can I can
0: totally see it though. Yeah, there's just um, it's a very. It it playing the mortal feels good and then it feels bad, right? Like, yes, yeah. You know, it's. I mean, you just have to play it. Yeah. If you could, if you could say it, you would just say it. But something like that, you have to play.
1: And I I can totally see that too, because like it has a lot of like romantic attachment going on there, which um, is one of the threads where I feel so deeply connected to being someone who has also made a lot of games about making out. <laughs> so.
0: Um, yes, yes, yes. You're right. We we have a core interest in. Well, I mean, let's let's just talk about. Uh, you you made a, a beautiful hack of Ben Lehman's uh, hot guys making out. That is about. Um, uh, what's the name of that guy and that other guy? And they solve mysteries and they are for sure, for oh, sure, for sure a couple. Yeah, right. Those, yeah. those guys, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. <laughs> That's it.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. That was actually the very first, uh, like, sort of reskin. Uh, it's the first game thing that I ever wrote ever, and I had no idea what I was doing. But I remember looking at Hot Guys Making Out and um, really enjoying the ways. It told a story and how it utilized its mechanics to like really build tension and that kind of thing. And was like, oh my gosh, this is great for so essentially so many other like fanfic ideas I have going on. Uh, in, you know, outside of this game, and uh, kind of looked at the characters there. And first of all, kind of identified like, oh, there's um, some like relationship dynamics here that I am keen not to like emulate in. A Sherlock Holmesian setting um but also to sort of emulate the relationship going on there so I played around with um the base characters and then um I don't know in a couple of weeks <laughs> I was soliciting my friends to come and like make out with me as Sherlock Holmes and John Watson and it was yeah
0: <laughs> and everyone just runs with it everyone everybody with just it. goes with it
1: it's amazing right yeah and it's quite heartening too because I've had um a couple of people follow up and say, oh, I played uh, Hot Guys making out uh, Sherlock Holmes and it was really great. I'm like, oh, (laughs) like it's it's maybe second that kind of feedback from people um, picking up a thing you wrote where you're like, this is so so silly. (laughs) Like, why would anyone play this? And um, have a good time
0: with it, yeah. Yeah, it is is really gratifying when someone engages with your work like that. And I, I don't know, I don't know exactly what that's like for people who like paint or make music because like I don't know how I can make art without someone like to play it at the end and do that part and have me be like okay another person has experienced this in a way that I am can be reasonably satisfied with
1: yeah yeah I um I find too whenever anyone says like oh, I played your thing I have that sort of dual sense of pride and then kind of feel like oh no
0: I hope oh, it was okay <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's that's interesting do you do you wonder about them having the kind of experience that you want or do you wonder if like they're going to see some flaws in it that you can see or what's what's the fear
1: oh that's a really good question oh man where does that even come from I kind of feel like ooh, I kind of feel like it comes from a place of being very aware of like blind spots so like I always assume that I've missed something like I have no confidence that anything I do is like ever 100% done (laughs) so maybe maybe there's like an element of perfectionism there where um, uh, I'm never convinced it's gonna go like perfectly and it's it's ridiculous to expect that because um, every experience is unique and different and people will um, use your mechanics and subject matter and content differently each time but um, yeah I guess that's maybe where that comes from and is something that's always in the back of my head to um, writing Girl Underground because I feel like that is even more the focus on Girl Underground is so on this player experience specifically like um, I guess I should roll back and explain what Girl Underground is maybe
0: <laughs> I guess I should ask you to yeah <laughs>
1: Um, But uh, Girl Underground being um, a role-playing game about being a curious girl in a wondrous world inspired by Alice in Wonderland and Wizard of Oz um, and those kinds of uh, books and movies and media, touchstones, um, is very focused on bringing out this girl's experiences about growing up and learning about her identity and the world around her and definitely has that kind of um, political tilt on wanting to really look at what it means to be a girl and what discourses do other people use to frame your experience and how can you in turn reframe it or like claim back a sense of agency or autonomy over both your place in society and how society like um, positions you. And oh my gosh, yeah, I am constantly worrying about being able to bring out that particular play experience. Um, and. And have that go smoothie for for plays.
0: That's so interesting. Now that you're you're explaining it in the con- in the context of like discursive a- a- analysis or like discursive psychology, because I I was taking a look at Girl Underground and looking at the ways that manners are uh, mechanically significant. That you have these manners that are laid out before you, like you know, uh, girls should not get their clothes dirty. Or, um, girls should not take up too much space or be too loud. Um, you know, a couple of other sort of common manners that are just things that girls should do and acknowledging those and like reframing those as your own actual beliefs is a mechanically significant part of the game. I don't know. Am I, am I explaining that correctly? Or, uh, I'm I'm sure I'm not explaining all of it.
1: No, I think it's more or less spot on, um, yeah, I uh, from very early on, I knew, and my, my co-designer um, Jesse Ross knew that um, we wanted to make that an explicit part of the game, like um, having baked into it these societal kind of uh, common expectations, I guess, that we put on girls about um, not taking up space or looking a certain way or speaking a certain way, dressing a certain way, <laughs> all that kind of thing, and being able to set that up as something to overcome and always being able to challenge those uh manners or discourses around young women and letting her articulate like her values like in response to that I suppose um and I think like uh it's always very satisfying when I run that game to see what people come up with when they're writing beliefs based on these manners like um I think this one that's like, young ladies must never tell lies, and I think that the player who challenged that belief came out with like, um, your wits are a tool to do what is right, and I was like, oh, that's it's quite neat. Or um, I forget exactly what manner it was, but we've had like, you know, there's beauty and truth, um, and some very like uh, quite deep things come out of uh these this girl that was going through her. Journey in Wonderland, and then, uh, and then in turn being able to use those beliefs further to overcome more challenges. So, like being able to draw upon your beliefs around like what's being a tool to do what is right, or they being beauty and truth, and using them to over overcome like other other sort of uh, like metaphoric patriarchal challenges. Um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Something that interests me is um, the. The introduction of your sort of your companions or people you encounter, as as the little girl lost, and what each of those brings in terms of tone, um, because I'm looking through it and I'm being like, okay, you know, I'm thinking, how do you introduce the character that makes this more labyrinthy, you know, or how do you introduce the character that makes this a little more, I don't know, wonderland e. Um, again, that's a really good observation there
1: as well, because uh, again, kind of from the inception, um, Jesse and I knew that we wanted these companions both to emulate, emulate genre, um, like archetypes, I suppose. So, like, there's the construct who's like your tin man uh, being imbued with life. Uh, sorry, an, an object imbued with life that is now like living, breathing. Uh, and then there's like the beastie is a bit Cheshire catty um, and that kind of thing, uh, but then on top of having these um, archetypes, uh, we really wanted each companion to bring out facets of the girl's identity um, represented in do- like these dual concepts of like um, the constructs being around objectivity and subjectivity. So what does it mean to have a physical presence and have a body and use that body? But then also possess a level of agency and um, autonomy and voice to be a, a person. And then uh, I think, uh, oh, my other secret favor is like uh, the ogre character, I think kind of like the Ludo from Labyrinth, who's um, who represents concepts of like power and shame. So like um, being being quite a presence and taking up space, uh, but then feeling a sense of shame in doing so, or not wanting people to look at you and. Being quite shy and self-conscious, so yeah, it's it, they're kind of doing two things there. I suppose, like giving you that um, hook into the genre, but then also again trying to trying to represent all these social discourses that are that are going on in this game.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and present something that's nuanced and that represents this, like like the things that we feel caught between or pulled between, like the contradictory desires or contradictory messages. It's not easy.
1: Oh yeah, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot of 2am, 3am moments where I wake up and I'm like, oh, i got to write this down now because... Yeah. <laughs> I That's good. <laughs> That's a good sign. And it's, it's been quite nice to um, seeing those concepts come out when we've played um, since a design goal for me is creating a game that like people have been in those kinds of positions before where they felt that duality. I want, I want them to feel... Enjoy playing this game, so like, uh, and have that sense of escapism and autonomy and control over their circumstances. Um, because I've played games before where there is an emphasis on being marginalized, but it sort of stops there. And I'm like, I, I, I feel this every day. <laughs> like, you know, I don't, I don't need to be reminded of how much it sucks to be marginalized. Uh, so, like giving those people like a place to um, uh, find that hope and optimism that comes with like exploring your self-identity and having, like, again, voice and agency. Um, but then also, for the, the people that aren't marginalized, I give them an experience of being in a position where um, you're being told what to do and overcoming that. And it's been quite nice, playing with people who aren't marginalized, to see that sort of look of that, that dawn on them when you know, I, uh, I ask pointed questions like, oh, you, like, you as the ogre. You've just had your fur shaved. Like, what are you feeling right now? Like, do you feel shame that you're, you're you're naked and exposed in front of like all these people? And seeing that player uh, respond and incorporate like those feelings into the into the narrative or and, and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're really taking people on a very particular journey. Yeah. When <laughs> when you're guiding them through, yeah, just talking about this stuff and talking about these like fantastical fun fairy tale things but that that themselves are can represent some more kind of troubling realities
1: yeah yeah which again yeah I think like act very accurately hit on uh one of the things that I keep getting stuck on which is there's a very like particular play experience that I would like people to have and it's so complicated and nuanced but you know hopefully hopefully I get there
0: (laughs) Remember that not everyone is going to have your completely ideal experience of play. Yes, that is that is so hard to just like acknowledge and like deal with sometimes.
1: Yeah, totally. I think that's what I've learned a lot most recently is that you have to sort of let go a bit and you know give people enough where they can, particularly give GMs enough where they can take this game and facilitate it in a way that'll. give the table, hopefully, a positive play experience, but, you know, uh, you have to breathe and let go, And <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know it's not easy. Spe- speaking of, I guess, challenging stuff, It's it's been interesting for me to tie what is going on in your game design with some of your academic work. Can we talk about your thesis at all? Or are you interested in, in talking about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: totally. I think particularly because my thesis ends up uh informing so much of my game design, even though it's very unrelated to a lot of actual games that I write but if you'd like a bit of background, I did my thesis on it was i think it's called like rape complainants on trial um and it was more or less uh analyzing the conversations between defense lawyers and rape complainants to understand um, both kind of how re-traumatizing that experience is having to recount your experiences in a courtroom, and how defense lawyers exacerbate that and contribute to re-traumatizing complainants, but then also looking at the social discourse defense lawyers use to undermine the witness's credibility, so a lot of typical, um, like, rape mythology stuff around um yeah like what were you wearing were you drinking like all the um not nice things that we uh used to like blame victims and sick to violence
0: it, it's a tough read but it, it was it was also interesting for me to read and to get you know a couple of chapters or a couple of pages in and realize that this is not from the perspective of the law, like you explain certain things, but how you know a New Zealand court is set up and how this works, and and some legal sort of re- relevant things, but it's really an analysis of an interaction, a, a, like a repeating interaction, and what is going on between the two people there, with an emphasis on um, the person on the who's who's being questioned as a witness or examined. Um, I guess is the term these two things that you're talking about right one one the things that the that that the defense can sometimes like re, can rely on even though technically they're not supposed to or you know even though those are technically like extra legal um cultural assumptions that you know quote unquote shouldn't enter into this totally objective forum that is the law uh, but then also, like how that actually affects people. Like it's so centered on the experiences of people who are going through terrible stuff. Yeah, God, that must have been hard to write.
1: Oh yeah, it was really hard to write. And I, in fact, when I finished it, um, I, felt I like I felt a sense of relief. Um, and then my supervisor at the time was like, "Oh, you could, you could do a PhD in this," and I was like, "I, I just, I need a, I need a break." And for the longest time, I kind of regretted stopping there because it's still an area that needs a lot of research and action done in it. And yeah, I think for a couple of years, I was like, oh, shoot, like I did this huge, like traumatizing thesis and it's kind of just sitting there. But I think I've since been able to really wrap it into game design since I spent that whole year just really thinking about consent and. How that is expressed in conversations and the discourses, the very normative discourses we have around consent, and really how much that does come into um, like gaming, gaming spaces, which makes a lot of sense because we are individuals living in a society, and that society has a lot of norms and beliefs about like yeah, um, consent practices and that kind of thing. So it's been really gratifying to take a lot of the academic research I did and bring it into this hobby that I'm very passionate about I suppose not, not that you need a, a degree to do this kind of thing but it was very very relieving that I could take this big piece of yeah research that I'd done and and use it in a way that's very practical I guess
0: yeah yeah that that is satisfying and that feels like a good use of it were there were there things that bothered you about the community when you started getting into RPGs?
1: Oh, that is a really good question. I don't think so. But and I got into RPGs like very late. because I just had some um accessibility issues when I was a younger teen and the um the D&D groups felt very no goals allowed <laughs> when I was growing up. So I I think I always had a, an interest in the in the hobby, but um it wasn't until I was actually you know what, I picked up role playing games while I was doing that thesis um, as a way to sort of detach from uh, what I was writing about. <laughs> and, and funnily enough, that I think it started out as Numenera, but then very quickly dovetailed into Night Witches, um, which I did a campaign of for, yeah, for like, I think it was like a six month long campaign or something ridiculous like that. So I, I love Night Witches. But, um, Before I get distracted, yeah, no, I so and then I I think the gaming spaces I fell into have a really positive, supportive play culture around them, which is mostly through the Gauntlet community, which um, I mentioned earlier. But I I guess when I think about um, discourse and consent and that kind of thing, it's really around like how that's expressed within a game system and where consent rests, like at a player level versus a character level. Um versus like a I guess like a GM level and like who gets to make decisions and how are those decisions like negotiated and are these decisions like free and revocable and informed and, and and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel very fortunate that I've I've had I've been a well, insulated by a very positive gaming community.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. It is I mean, maybe that's actually one of the appealing things about gaming is that people are actively thinking about consent, even when sex isn't involved. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I, that was, I think, one of the more um, mind-blowing parts about it, I guess, when I when I came into it and really started thinking about the design aspect of gaming and going, oh, shoot, like, there are so many similarities between the way we, like, negotiate sex and the way that we negotiate decision-making in gaming. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I think it, it came... That really came out when I was playing Good Society, which is the Story Brewer's Jane Austen RPG, since the cassette mechanic there is very much, a, um, uh, I will give you a token uh, if you let this bad thing happen to your character. And then the person responding can say, oh, that sounds great, yeah, let's do it. I'll take the token," Or they can say, yeah, but um, I'd like to put this condition upon it, um, or like, "No, that it's not going to happen. So there's a lot of like upfront discussion around what is about to happen. So it's very like front-loaded consent negotiation, which is really cool, as opposed to some other games that aren't as front-loaded. And uh, I guess that's when you see like uh, consent tools like script change or X Card coming in um, during like that point where the thing has happened, and we now need to sort of negotiate around it and have that discussion at that
0: point. Or or games that. Are predicated on surprise, which oh
1: my gosh, is complicated.
0: Yeah. It's not that surprise is always bad. It's not that full transparency is the only way to exist, but man, that's complicated.
1: Oh, it's so complicated. I I've definitely um had the surprise, <laughs> <laughs>
0: happen in, in some games, and it was not appreciated. But um, yeah, definitely something that um that I'm very curious about is the. The game that you made, which which is also a hack of *The Final Girl*, *The Final Girl* being a game about uh, like slasher movies, right, where you're where the characters are sort of one by one getting eliminated by some mysterious evil force, and you're finding out which one's going to be the last one. Um, so naturally, you made this into a dating reality show. Natural. Um, naturally, naturally, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the results are you know chillingly similar. You are you are the second person I'll be talking to in a, a relatively recent span of time, who is very keen on reality shows and their similarity to games. Or at least I think you're keen on it. I don't know. Maybe you're not. No, so I am... Yeah,
1: I, it's so nice that I am so interested in a hobby that has that flexibility to bring in my guilty pleasure love of reality TV <laughs> and, uh, and and role-playing games. Yeah, and I, I forget where... No, I... I remember exactly when that happened, which was, I think I just played Final Girl, uh, like the original one with the slashes, because I'm, I'm also very into horror, horror uh, movies. And I remember watching The Bachelorette Australia season three, which is a- amazing. It's the best piece of Bachelorette satire I've ever seen in my life.
0: <laughs> okay, can can you break that down a little bit? I must know more.
1: Oh yeah, I, I okay, what. So uh, for The Bachelorette Australia Season 3, they somehow managed to get Sophie Monk who is an Australian pop star on as The Bachelorette and I believe she had kind of like a single bad girl um, reputation before the show and I think she was trying to uh, lift that image somewhat to like a, I'm just a casual Australian gal looking to settle down, meet a nice Aussie guy kind of thing. And the I'm not quite sure what production was doing, but it was such a well-purposed fart watching it that I was like, this has they have to be doing this on purpose. It was very comedic. And I think the best example of that was there was this poor guy who had bought the Sophie a love plant and uh gave it to her and was very earnestly like this is our plant and will grow together and it will symbolize our love as it develops on this show. very very sweet. And for five episodes uh, they followed this plot line where the plant died allegedly because someone had urinated in it and so they were trying to find like the mystery urinator who had killed this <laughs> plant and you can see production too working up this poor guy <laughs> um, to... A state of like frustration about how dare someone urinate on his love plant. Uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> I guess you can write this stuff, but I, yeah, it was, <laughs> I was like, what am I watching? And they had like yeah, the man challenge where it was like, you know, uh, the guys are gonna. Down a beer and then change a tire and then build some IKEA furniture. Oh yeah, it God. was very. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess I, I watched this and I was like, holy crap, this has to be a role-playing game as you do when <laughs> <laughs> that comes along. And then thought, you know, Final Girl has an elimination format that is really suited to the reality show genre for these kinds of competitions. And then yeah, when went about just gutting all the the horror out of uh, out of Final Girl and writing out some really weird dates. I think a lot of them I did end up stealing straight straight from The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And and I it, I wrote their game and I was like, this is so silly. Like this, this is one of those ridiculous games that benefits no one. <laughs> 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 but. I guess secretly I I like to think it's a bit subversive because you know these shows are very heteronormative and very sort of gender binary as well um and it was like hey you know in my game where you can play a bachelor person uh you can date anyone like you can <laughs> you can date like any gender you can be any gender and be any sexuality uh, which is not a thing that we see ever in the in any of these like sort of dating shows, that sort of tailor to killer who's the worst. And so it was in my way to, I guess like queering up that that genre as well and creating a space to take a thing that I kind of had an interest in, but then make it better, like make it the thing I wanna play, which is another inspiration for a lot of my game design is, oh, that was kinda cool, but I hate this about it. So I'm gonna take this and make it a game so that I can write my own TV show or a movie or or a book.
0: Yeah. Which is one of the marvelous things about gaming in general, right? I say this all the time. Like, we get to tell us stories that we actually really want, like, that don't have any of that horrible garbage in it. That is always in every mainstream piece of media.
1: Oh, yeah. And I have to say, Starcrossed has been, like, amazing for that, oh, by the really? way. like <laughs> <laughs> I, I played Starcrossed and embarrassing amount of times now with my friends and I have a dear friend Ryan who we pretty much just used to across to play out romances of characters either in games we've been in together or from um, TV or movie genres where we didn't we, we didn't get like the the romance we wanted uh, so like I think my, the favorite game of play with him was we took our Monster of the week characters who were working in an office but also monster hunting on the side and we were both accountants but he was a vampire and I was a human and so we played out Starcrossed in like the office where we couldn't be together because we enjoyed our accounting rivalry so much and if we tried to date and it went badly then we couldn't be accounting rivals anymore.
0: <laughs> That's so good.
1: <laughs> that was Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah that was very very sweet so yeah thank you for Starcrossed.
0: Well, thank you for enjoying it. I I recall when I, I'm going to say demanded to have you on this podcast was, right <laughs> after your game at it was would have been a big bad con this year, um space station Phobolex. and so that that's a game where we had I think ten tables of star crossed, all going on in the same room. Every game affects every other game. They're all taking place in the same uh, space station, and. It was so funny because we had a huge, we had a variety of characters and tones and stories and, you know, everybody was was doing their own thing in a beautiful interlocking way. But there was something about your corner of the room that was just, it was just a little bit different. It was a little bit more sincere. It was more, it was quiet and contemplative. And yet also at the same time, totally sexy and absurd. You were like space cowboys or one of you was a space cowboy. I forget what the other one was. What was going on?
1: Oh, yeah, there was the Wellbury Space Cowboy. Oh, and there was, like, the
0: young Kirk kind of kid who... Oh, yeah. Uh, I forget what. <laughs> who was, like, j- just came in from, like, you know, uh, a really, like, frontier planet and didn't know anything about this wild metropolitan space station life.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, like, the frontier kid. Uh, who came in. Yeah, that's right. We had a very much, like, a... Yeah, it was like you said, a very intimate, micro kind of small relationship that happened over the course of a couple of days that mostly involved uh, us at a bar together, flooding and heading into the bathrooms and the tap, the faucet breaking and getting water everywhere, and then shirts <laughs> had to come off. And <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was also a zero g rodeo. I'm, I mean, oh yeah, there were many things.
1: There were so many things. Yeah, writing this, writing this, I think, writing the space form may have come up with like the giant space radio. Yeah, and I think that's what I really enjoyed the most about Star is both how it captures such a wide range of tone, but since each block pull is such a microtransaction where you're kind of creeping toward that moment where you make a move, uh, it really accommodates those slow like languid scenes where you can really explore the nuances of, of this relationship that may or may not happen um, which is not a thing I really get to experience much in in uh, other styles of games so it's
0: it's quite a it's quite a, a treat well thank you thank you Lauren I'm I'll include all of this I won't cut any of this all this praise <laughs> <and> staying in <laughs> this episode brought to you by Quest uh. <laughs> well, that's very exciting and I love that you've been able to translate so much of what you've learned I think from from something that's very painful and very real and are trying to turn it into uh, turn it into the opposite right turn it from here's what people believe is really horrible and here's how people get really really hurt and re-hurt over and over again. Here is the opposite of that. Here is how we don't do that. Here is the positive version. And and that's, yeah, that's kind of amazing to me and, and, and makes me very happy.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome. Uh, your, yeah, your thesis was very, very affecting. And I forget where I was going with this.
1: <laughs> oh, it's all good. I, it reminded me actually, I guess like skipping back to Girl Underground a little bit, one thing that I guess over the past six months I've become very interested in is like trying to take the patriarchy out of I guess the gaming systems I guess or trying to um, really interrogate sort of narrative control and that kind of thing. Uh, and the way I've been exploring it in Girl Underground is who has the authority to to speak on uh, when you're uh, looking at this. Consequences or outcomes of a, of a move since Girl Underground, um, which I forgot to say, is uh, like roughly uses a, a PBTA kind of structure where there's like a 7 plus and a 6 minus condition. And one thing that from the jump I was very interested in was thinking about how much narrative control and agency had the girl had in a sort of 7 plus and 6 minus kind of situation since six minus is often so synonymous with failure and I was like oh that's really not like what I, I want to be about is like, about failure and success I want it to be about like uh, making giving her a voice and giving her some threats and weird dreamy surreal stuff but at the end of the day it shouldn't be about about um, failure and it it's, like, especially shouldn't be about the GM dictating that failure so at present the way the rules are written are to always give the girl narrative control on a, a sort of 7 plus and a 6 minus since again I think that largely came from um, my thesis background and looking at who has like the right to speak <laughs> Um, it wasn't a very specific like legal context in that case but really yeah really thinking about who's who, who got the floor to speak I suppose yeah and a lot of like the 7 plus 7 to 9 6 minus um watching McCollum's like results are come in the form of a question so for the girl, I think it's like on a seven plus it's like a describe how you overcome this challenge and I think on some various like six minus results it's the effect of like what what lessons have you taken away from this experience or like what's what do you fear will happen or that kind of thing so giving her the jumping off point to focus the direction of the story before passing back over to the to the GM and I think that's more or less how it works for companions as well, is each of those seven plus, seven to nine, six minus results are written with a lot of care and attention to who gets to speak as soon as the dice have been rolled and what that'll mean for the story going forward.
0: Oh, that's great. Let's let's keep tearing that apart. You're I think um the the assumptions about when we need a GM and what will happen. You know, if if this person or that person is given the right to determine what, to say what happens, to speak, as you say. That is, that is really an, uh, an underexamined question. You, you've got my mind kind of spinning now. This, I, I, it makes sense that you would love games as someone who's really into di- uh, discursive psychology. But is it just completely overwhelming? Like, are you just like, it, it's, is it just like looking at the Matrix? Like, there's so much happening when people are playing a role-playing game.
1: Oh, there is so much. In fact, I if I were really to go back and do a PhD, it would probably be on uh, imaginative play in, in adults. Um, but no, I kind of I kind of love it. It's it's like watching sports for me. Um, seeing like uh, seeing how people interact and take turns at speaking and negotiating the sort of unspoken social rules or actual rules in gaming about yeah who has, who has the authority or right to speak. And in what circumstances? And I think one thing I'm also beginning to interrogate that you've got my mind spinning on now is like having that role of a, a GM and when it's useful and when it isn't, and what role they have, and all that
0: good theoretical stuff. Yeah. Oh, I mean, because our assumptions about the necessity of the GM and the role of the GM, I think, says so much about our understanding of power in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah, now I'm thinking like, so the, the advice to GMs I give for Girl Underground is, yes, don't think about success and failure, think about success and, and weird. <laughs> and really just um, being, a, being a presence to flesh out and illustrate the sort of dreamy surrealism of Wonderland, which can kind of be a bit, a bit threatening and strange and scary, um, but is also very whimsical and, and fantastical.
0: That that's interesting to me because you have the GM in wh- what sounds to me like very much a service role, because they're they're doing work, they're producing, they're creating content, right? They're making things, and that that is like intellectual and emotional, you know, work, but it's in the service of, you know, whoever's playing the girl. It's in the service of the player, and that's making me wonder about how people think about the GM role. Because you can be in power and you can be leading and still be in a service role. Like, that's that's still power that you have. But how do you... F- oh, I can't even form a good question around this.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think one that I, I guess I keep coming back to these um, games about, about women because I think the other game I really love facilitating, which I've mentioned, is this Night Witches. And again, I, I kind of come at that game in a very service so the service finds it as the gm to set up challenges for the women in this uh, in this situation to overcome and find a place of power and identity and voice in taking down some of the patriarchal aspects of their community that are, are happening and i think yeah Likewise, I see some similarities in the way the moves and night witches wrap in gender identity and sexuality and um bucking systems of power. So yes, maybe yes, that's I guess that's my jam
0: But <laughs> 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 in the power. I guess that's my jam i'm I'm very content with that. I think it's a good jam, yeah. This is this is a, a very a very rich and satisfying conversation. Thank you. No problem. Likewise. Uh, if if my listeners want to keep up with you and the projects that you work on and that kind of stuff, where is the best place for them to go?
1: Oh my gosh, wait up again. So I think uh, I'm most accessible on Twitter. I'm at the stray kiwi, uh, and. I can also be found on girlunderground.org, which is uh, where we keep people updated on Girl Underground while while that's in track. Uh, And then, yeah, you can also find me at the Gauntlet uh, RPG community, which is uh, gauntlet-rpg.com. There we play a bunch of story OSR indie games together as I said I used to play a game a day on there so I was, uh, hope to become a lot more active in that space very soon so you're welcome to come and play some games with me there uh and I think I think that's it I was on G plus but that that will be I'm going away
0: yeah
1: very shortly <laughs>
0: yeah rip, rip I, I google saw- plus
1: yeah, I saw some of your um, memories you were sharing from Google+, Plus and sort of that memoriam of it going away. It was, yeah, I had, I had a lot of feelings.
0: <laughs> it is it is a funny thing, right? I feel like I should have, like, a, a little memorial episode or something. Everyone can talk about their treasured RPG G+, memories. And then there's, like, a bonus episode where everyone talks about, like, the frustrating, stupid drama and uselessness and irritation. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah yeah we'll we'll see uh great well um thank you so much and good luck and yeah i hope hope to see you again sometime soon
1: oh my gosh yes thank you so much for having me on i've been dying to talk to you about games and breaking each other's minds when it comes to interrogating all the assumptions we have about about game systems in fact oh my gosh i didn't even talk to you about like satire and
0: Again, to my lovely guest, and as always, thank you for listening. If you have thoughts on today's show, you can email me at backstorypodcastgmail.com at or tweet at me at backstorycast. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network and is hosted by me and produced by the talented Alex Sisk. Our music is provided by Ujico. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more by searching UJICO on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever else you get your chill beats. Remember that this show would not be possible without the OneShot Podcast Network's Patreon. You can support the One Shot Network by going to patreon.com/oneshotpodcast, and find more great RPG-related shows at oneshotpodcast.com. Shows like Modifier. Modifier is an interview show hosted by Megan Dornbrock, all about the why and how people change games. From the hobbyist to the professional, from house rules to publication, we all have in mind a better way to play. What's yours? Talk to you later, friends.